Laura, what's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? I couldn't say. Well, for me, it's a skateboard. <laughs> no, it was also a house and a small dog and a small child, maybe mine, <laughs> who knows, and also my fortune, um, $8 million fortune, but uh, that was just last Tuesday. Anyways, welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. I'm Laura. I am the lit expert. And my name is Ed Tom Bell, and I've seen these parts, but I ain't gonna say nothing because it might make your soul at hazard. <laughs> and this is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. Tonight's a film adaptation. We are covering the book by Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men, which was adapted into the 2007 film of the same name, directed by the Coen brothers. Ever heard of them? Oh, yeah. They're some of my favorite directors. Yeah, which I was I was kind of surprised when when you first told that to me because when we initially started dating, you had seen some movies, but you were lacking in some other areas. So <laughs> I thought I'd I thought I was going to just illuminate this new world to you and show everything. But then you're like, oh, I like the Corn Brothers. I'm like, this girl is something else. Maybe I'll see her again. And I did. And now we're, we live together. <laughs> well, I guess my first introduction to the Coen Brothers was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. So how could you not love that movie? Great film. So. Yeah. Shot by Roger Deakins. As was this film, we're going to be talking about this guy, Roger, all dang podcast. Finally. Danny doesn't shut up about him all the time. We are. Every movie we watch, Danny's like, this was shot by Roger Deakins. Yeah. Or he was nominated that year and he should have won this year. But yeah, it's funny because he was nominated for this and he didn't win. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. But let's get back on track. What a book and what a film. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean like exhausting and challenging, mm -hmm. but also fun. Laura's mm -hmm. giving me that look like she's got, oh, okay. No, I agree. It's, it's not a book or movie for the faint of heart. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, let you, I'll tell you that right now. Both are very graphic and violent, and this is a case where... I think this is probably the closest adaptation to One the book. One of the closest, for sure, yeah. Yeah, maybe Fight Club was also very similar, but yes. even that was... I mean, there are some scenes in this book where the dialogue from start to finish is, like, the same. Right. Uh, you know, some parts might have been cut out for time, but, I mean, there are stretches where it is a carbon copy. Yeah. Yeah, let's... Yeah, dark themes, lots of violence... Realistic violence, not something that I normally go for. Right, but... which I was I was shocked when you were jiving with the book. I'm just like... Me too. Wow. Well, this book I did push off reading for a while because mm -hmm. I read a bunch. I kind of front-loaded a bunch that we knew we were going to cover for the podcast, and this was not one that I picked up with a lot of excitement, but I ended up really enjoying it. So. Wow. Yeah. That... I'm glad you chose it because... Honestly, I probably would never have read it or watched the movie if we didn't right. do this podcast. So this is a good example of something that I never would have exposed myself to unless we had this podcast. It's it's interesting. And I was nervous 
to expose it to you because it's one of those movies and and I read the book too in this instance and it's one of those movies and books that is challenging and it, and because it's challenging it's hard to recommend because you don't know if that will trigger someone, right? Sometimes you just want to read a story with a beginning, middle, and end where there's some twists, but you pretty much know what's going to happen, and you have a hero and a villain, and everything aligns as you would expect. Sometimes that just, you need that sometimes. Right. And other times, you want something that's challenging and and really subverts your expectations and requires your constant attention and mental participation and that's a lot to ask if you're if you just want to watch a movie and that's okay too i mean there are a bunch of you know very artsy fartsy movies that i love as a you know as a cinephile but there are other ones where i'm just like you're just being edgy for ed edginess sake like you're just you're just throwing twists in there to be like look how cool i am look how weird and different this is sometimes you go bernadette <laughs> Uh, sure. And yeah, and I think this is a case where, yes, this movie, as we'll get to, is very anticlimactic and intentionally unsatisfying. And upon first watch, it's completely understandable if you're turned off mm -hmm. by this story. As I was, I watched it at a young age. We'll, we'll get to that in our, in our backgrounds with this property, but... It, it totally makes sense if you don't like it your first go around. But then upon a second, third viewing or with the book, you know, a second or third read through, it's something that you can come to appreciate more to see what, you know, Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers were going for. Again, I'm not saying that this applies to everyone, but it certainly applies to me. As I've grown older, I've come to really appreciate it more and love it in certain aspects. I don't think the movie or book is perfect. There's like a couple things in both the movie and book that are holding it back for me from greatness. Mm -hmm. But this is certainly one that is, de it's definitely rewatchable. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, it, it's a quick book, a quick movie, mm -hmm. and there is some value in rewatching it. It's just, it's just tough. It's just like a tough sell. Yeah, I agree. I think if this, if there were any movie that were intended for mature audiences, this is a movie for an older audience group, right? Because the themes are so dark that, and the imagery is so dark, yeah. that I think almost the only way to get past the violence is to understand why the violence is there and how it's being used to further the themes of the story. Absolutely. And not to be a dead horse here, but something this, you know, oppressively dark and dour and mature is a lot to ask out of someone to watch it. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll start out with my journey mm -hmm. with No Country for Old Men. So this came out when I was in seventh grade. And around that time, I was getting into movies, but I wasn't really a film buff at that time. I think middle school is when I transitioned my dreams of you know, being an actor to wanting to become a director. So I, I would say eighth and ninth grade is when I really came into my own with my tastes and sort of like seeking out films. Mm -hmm. Seventh grade, I still, I still really didn't know what you know film criticism was really didn't know like how to look at a film analytically i you know i just liked i just liked fun films right yeah. harry potter films too but 
I remember No Country for Old Men winning Best Picture. And one member of my family, I'm not going to say who, had seen this film. And he or she didn't <laughs> like the film at all and said it was pretty terrible. And seventh grade, Danny was curious. Oh, man. I somehow was able to rent it through Blockbuster Total Access. Remember that? So mm -hmm. it, it was the rival to Netflix, which in that time, 2008, they were Netflix was still just sending DVDs right. in the mail, right? Mm -hmm. And Blockbuster was like, we have a physical store. Like, we can do that, too. And the thing about Blockbuster Total Access, to quickly plug this, not to go on a tangent, but listen, I loved Blockbuster. I don't know how they went out of business since the Gaylord family owed them about $8 million in late fees. <laughs> a comedian has made that joke. I, I, don't, I didn't want to steal that. But it's true. The Gaylord family, I mean, <laughs> the amount of late fees my parents, I should say, paid for movies. Anyways, Blockbuster Total Access was great because instead of waiting a whole week for another Netflix DVD to be shipped to you, you could just go to the store and mm -hmm. search one out, right? Yeah. So, but why am I talking about Blockbuster? They are no more. <laughs> Anyways, I was able to rent it through that. I watched it, and I was just... Uh, part of me was turned off by the violence, because at that age, that still yeah. violent violence like that really affected me. Yeah. It wasn't until, you know, high school when I started getting desensitized with all the movies I was watching. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I was turned off by the violence, and then I also was really turned off by the unexplained nature of the story because the thing about the story is that it's both very simple and that's a chase story but it also doesn't explain anything mm -hmm. so you like don't know who's looking for what like who hired who mm -hmm. is the mexican cartel like is anton a part of this cartel or is he separate so right. the story is both simple and confusing which i could recognize as a seventh grader but i still i was frustrated that i couldn't grasp what I thought was a pretty simple story. I'm just like, why am I not getting this? Like, it, it, this seems so simple. Why am I not getting this? And then, of course, as I've already talked about, the very anticlimactic ending, which I'm like, a seventh grade Danny, I'm like, that's bullshit. And like, I sat through two hours for that. Like, what the hell? It ends with Tommy Lee Jones talking about this like random ass dream. Like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, Shigur wasn't stopped. He's, he, he keeps on going. Mm. And then my opinion of the movie even got worse because freshman year of high school, I watched There Will Be Blood now. Mm. <laughs> Hashtag things film majors say. Mm. There Will Be Blood, one of the best movies ever made. It's I've yet to see it, but we will watch it. Yes, it is <laughs> certainly intense like this movie. But if you can take No Country, you can certainly can take There Will Be, there will be Blood. Yeah. <laughs> But I watched There Will Be Blood. Freshman Danny was just blown away. And that, you know, for a while became my favorite, favorite movie. And so No Country for Old Men became even worse in my mind because There Will Be Blood was up for the, you know, best picture at the same time right. No Country was. And it lost, you know, all the major awards except for Best Actor. Um, it lost all the major awards to No Country. Right. So, you know, best screenplay, best adapted screenplay, excuse me, best director, mm -hmm. and best picture. Right. And look, this isn't fair to No Country, right? Like, I'm, I'm admitting my bias 
to you, the <laughs> listeners, and to you, Lore. It isn't fair to hate another film because it beat out There Will Be Blood for Best Picture. But, you know, I'm going to be honest, it's hard to divorce myself from that. Mm-hmm. I'll always remember it that way. It sucks for the Coen brothers that that's the case, but it's just I, there's some resentment there. I'm glad I watched this first, so maybe I'll have a little bit less bias, and I can sort of see which one I like better, or the pros and cons at least of each one a little more objectively. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> so, I'm not as emotionally yeah. to the, tied to the Well, m- my story has a happy ending in that as I went on throughout film school, I decided to give it another shot, and I was at that time I was also getting really into Roger Deakins, all his mm-hmm. body of work, and I'm like, oh yeah. snap, he, he shot... No country? Like, I, maybe I should watch that again. And then, you know, when I was much older and watched it, I gained a new appreciation for, you know, what the Corn Brothers and Cormac McCarthy, what they were doing mm-hmm. with, with essentially telling a, a revisionist neo-Western, right? Yeah, you know, that's some, a really good way something, of Yeah, something that challenges your take on, on Westerns themselves. So I really appreciated it more when I saw it in film school. But, you know, there still was some resentment there, of course. And then now, watching it for a third time for this podcast, I'm kind of far enough away from my first watch of There Will Be Blood. And, uh, of course, I still love There Will Be Blood. It is my 10th favorite movie in my top 100 list. It's at number 10. And uh, I don't think it'll ever move from there, you know, in the foreseeable future. But, yeah. Dune is coming out. Oh, boy. Dune twenty twenty directed by my boy Denis. Shot by Roger Deakins. Shot by Ro- oh no no it actually wasn't. Oh no. Yeah yeah maybe Dune maybe Dune will get in there. Also Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which is gonna come out soon. But anyways, yeah appreciated a lot more with this last viewing and yeah. How about you though? What's your journey? Well, I have a really short journey, but it's interesting that you mention that you watched it in seventh or eighth grade. Because the only interaction I've ever had with this story was, I think, during the 2008 Oscars Awards or Academy Awards. And the only reason I can kind of trace that memory is because I had a very visceral fear just because I had only seen the clip of Sugar flipping the coin with the convenience store guy. Mm, one of the and, best scenes right well of the movie. but here's the thing so my parents know that i'm a i may be growing out of this but i'm a i used to be a very sensitive person when it came to intaking like movies and television and stuff and so mm-hmm. they knew that i was really sensitive to violence and so this is the really ironic thing when that was up for all of the awards and that clip was probably shown just right before they announced the winner of right. best picture that clip was shown but before the clip could stop i don't think either of my parents had seen it and so they assumed that sugar was going to shoot the guy right and so they like muted it and they said oh laura look away this is a really violent film you might have trouble if you watch this clip so and of course that in my head became even worse. Right. Right? Because nothing happens, which is, again, I say it's ironic because that's actually 
the whole point of the movie is like subverting your expectations. Right. And it doesn't happen. Right. And it honestly probably would have been better and would have caused less trauma for me had I just seen him walk away. Right. But I never went back to that clip and I never went back to the movie because in my head it was like just this complete random murder that yeah. was just, you know, I was going to see blood and I was going to hear the gunshot and like that in my head was so terrible and violent that I never went back to this. And when we started to discuss watching this movie for the podcast, I actually wasn't sure. I thought this might be the first time where I would read the book but not watch the movie. Mm -hmm. Because I just, I had this like terrific fear of this whole thing. So anyway, that almost, that's pretty much my journey. And then we bought the book and I started reading it. And even though I have a very vivid imagination, I was fine with the book. I was actually immediately sucked in. And then as soon as I saw, or as soon as I read the scene with Sugar and the shopkeeper, and I found out he doesn't die, I was like, okay. And as Danny knows too, as soon as I kind of prep myself for a movie, if I've read the book, I can pretty much handle any violence as long as I know what's going to happen. And like, who's going to die, I can sort of prepare myself and not get emotionally attached to those characters. Right. So as soon as I read the book, I was like, okay. And Danny explained the book is very one-to-one -one comparison. Yeah. Is a very one-to-one -one comparison. And so I was like, okay, like I buckled myself in. I was ready for the violence and I really enjoyed it. And after doing a little bit of research for the podcast, I can say that I really, really like the book and I really, really like the movie. So this is something that's just totally opened my eyes to a new sort of violent genre that I wouldn't necessarily gravitate toward naturally, but now I'm almost craving it because it's so dark and it just makes me think so much about my own morality and my own fate and right. stuff. So. Well, you say, well, you've opened a door now. I'm going to start to show you some really messed up stuff oh boy i can't Gosh. wait well you meant you mentioned morality and fate and well that kind of goes to the the message of the movie or, or at least what it's about and and i wrote in my notes that it's about both the book and the movie are about three things and this is my take on it it's about choices consequences and fate now consequences and choices that goes hand in hand right we all know mm -hmm. cause and effect right but i don't think people really consider how choices can lead into fate right and that that kind of seems counterintuitive right like your fate is something that's set but it, you're making a choice so how can those two be related and yeah. i think what you know, Chigurh really, his philosophy is that once you make a choice, that's like going down a road, a mm -hmm. fixed road. Once you start walking or driving down this road, the end is the end and you, sh you shouldn't question it. So that's kind of the scary thing about fate. And when I say fate, I mean death, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what Sugar believes, mm -hmm. is that death is the ultimate fate. And so it can catch up with you at any point, but that is the ultimate fate. Like that's what, that's the road as, as Ed Tom Bell says, that's what's coming down the line mm -hmm. always. And that's the end. Yeah. And you know, it's coming for all of us. And like in the first scene, we see Shigur brutally murder a police officer, like right away. Like we open the film and like, 
Well, honestly, Hot babe. I, this is funny. I was going to say by page 30, I had lost count of the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, that- I mean, it. this book really pulls you in. It's kind of an explosion and then a slow burn. It's like the opposite of a dynamite explosion. Right. Like there's just so much that's front loaded with violence and then the chase occurs right yeah it's usually it's usually right exactly and it also the chase and and, in the setup to the chase both Carmack mccarthy and the the coen brothers they really respect the audience so you know they they show don't tell right Mm -hmm. sugar is pulled over you know in the very first scene and he has handcuffs and it's like okay bad guy right and they they literally don't waste one minute in the very next scene he's killing a guy and the way he kills him says everything about his character totally yeah right I have that in my notes too. and again there's no dialogue and yet you know everything just from one kill right so you, you're established okay his facial expression his breathing the way he regulates his emotions and his breathing yeah right so bad guy and then the very next scene we meet moss uh you know played by josh brolin who at this point in his career wasn't wasn't really big he had the goonies right when he was a teenager but he he really wasn't starring in anything this was kind of his comeback so to speak so you see josh brolin's moss and he, instead of like a very unceremonious kill with Shigur in the scene previously, he's very cool and calculated hunting some antelopes with this high-powered rifle. And, the, you know, the message is clear. Man or beast, or like, you know, Remington 700 or like a cattle gun, right? You know, death doesn't care, mm-hmm. right? It, death, death is the same. Once you're dead, you're dead. But the method, it doesn't matter. But... It's coming for us all, just like Sugar is coming for oh Moss. Always the, gonna... oh yeah, Sugar, he's coming for you. I'm not sleeping tonight. <laughs> Heads, no tails. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my take on the movie. But uh, let's get let's get your your little take. Okay, so I broke my analysis into two major themes, and I think that there are a lot. That we're not going to talk about. Right. Like crime and punishment, stuff like that. There are a lot of themes. Yeah, more also, sorry to interrupt. I know I just talked and I'm interrupting (laughs) you. But also, I think it's no coincidence that both the book and the movie are based in 1980. Mm -hmm. The year Reagan was elected and Cormac McCarthy was kind of an outspoken critic of Reagan and of how his policies, like how the whole country was going to shit, just like how, you know, Ed Tom Bell is saying, like, the world is going to crap. Reagan, I... I, Because of narcotics. Right. Which is something that Reagan was really criticized for his handling of. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah, I know your opinion of Reagan. I don't hate him as much as you do. I think he's, you know, by far... The fall of America. It all goes back to Reagan. Uh-oh. I, I, it Don't got political. But I think he's easily the most overrated president. Let's let's leave it at that. Um, but anyways, go I'm back gonna to... I'm going to go... Okay. So, like I said, there are a lot of sub-themes that we're not going to talk about because there are so many, and this book is bottomless when you take the punch ladle to the punch bowl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not, I, I'm, I'm on board. I'm okay. getting it. Keep going. Anyway... So I'm choosing to highlight two of the major themes. I want to talk about the nature of evil and fate's role in life and death. Ooh, okay. Those are my two major themes. So 
First of all, if we take a little bit of a step back to contextualize those themes, I want to talk about the title. So I don't know if you know this. I don't know if it's a fun fact or if it's just a well-known fact, but the title, No Country for Old Men, is an allusion to Yeats's poem, Sailing to Byzantium. Mm. It's the first line of that poem. Cool. It's a very well-known poem. And it was written in his later years because it's a poem about aging in general, but specifically men aging. Obviously, no country. This is no country for old men. That's the first line. Gotcha. And it's a short poem. It's only three stanzas. I could read it out loud, but every time I think about reading poetry out loud or reciting poetry, I always think about my university professor, Dr. Brown. He was my poetry professor, and he did such an incredible job reading and reciting poems from memory. He was incredible at it. I just could not do him justice, so I'm not going to read the full poem. Uh, But basically, it's about how old men or old people become quote-unquote useless as time goes on, and how one of the only ways to become useful again or to come to terms with your aging and your coming fate which is death Mm -hmm. you have to accept that you're aging and accept your fate of death and in that way you become wise again which is quote-unquote useful accepting your fate uh, a thing that Anton Chigurh literally says to a couple characters um, throughout the movie Yeah. yeah so that's that's sort of the tone that this is set And it doesn't have an epigraph, but I would say that the title is sort of stands in for the epigraph because that places you in the context of this idea of aging. And each chapter is forwarded with the thoughts of Ed Tom Bell, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. And so this is sort of the whole thing that he's processing. He's aging and he's realizing that crime has taken on a new darkness And so he needs to sort of transition out of this hero of the law who's defend and defendant of the law Mm -hmm. because he doesn't think that he can protect normal people anymore. Like there's a new evil that's coming. Right. So that brings in my second theme, which is the nature of evil and how that sort of a question of has that changed over time or does that change as your perspective changes when you age? Hmm. So those are my two big themes. Right. I don't know if, do you want to, you want me to keep going or? Well, I want to piggyback. I feel like I'm on a, on a Zoom call. I want to piggyback on the point that Brian's, <laughs> um, piggyback of the whole point of accepting your fate and how that plays out in both the book and the movie. There is... Ed Tom Bell, who is introduced as the sheriff, and we think, based on our expectations, that he is going to be the person who eventually, maybe not saves Moss, but at least saves Carla Jean and or thwarts Sugar. Right. But what McCarthy was kind of saying was like, no, as he was getting into his old age, he was realizing that well <laughs> this country isn't for me well or at least like this this job isn't for me like i am anymore a- anymore excuse me right. like i am unequipped now and that's what accepting his fate is and in in a sense that's more dignified than like trying to stick it out through this job when he knows he can't 
he can't save anyone when he knows it's going to keep going. Right. And you know what? That's actually a really major piece that I was going to talk about yeah. in my Go ahead. analysis because all of the characters that think that they're in control tend to be the ones that are murdered very quickly by Sugar. Right. <laughs> and that goes back to Sugar's philosophy of you have free will up into the point where your fate catches up with you. Right. And your fate is death. And he's sort of the deliverer of that fate. And that is so clear in the beginning. So right off the bat with the young deputy who's murdered by Sugar, mm-hmm. he thinks he has the situation. I think he literally says the words, I have things under control. Yep. He's, mm-hmm. he's here. I have him handcuffed. And as soon as he hangs up the phone, Sugar is, as he's on the phone call, Sugar is, you know, putting his hands in front of his feet and to allow him to catch mm-hmm. the guy's throat. Throat, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that happens. Um, the rich people who have hired Sugar and then Wells and Sugar to go after the money, mm-hmm. you think they think they're in control, and then Sugar shows up and hits all of them. Right, like immediately. <laughs> immediately. There's no, there's not even a beat. Right. Uh, there's not even a breath. Like he just immediately shoots them. And... So again, that sort of plays into his philosophy of you have free will up into the point where fate catches up with you and I am fate. I'm the deliverer of fate. And that's that. Right. So it's really interesting to see Ed Tom Bell react. And so throughout the chase, Moss thinks that he's in control. And that's his pitfall. Right. Because he thinks that he's prepared. He thinks he knows what he's dealing with. And he thinks he can outrun this guy. But on the other hand, Ed Tom Bell is someone who realizes maybe I need to take a step back because even if I tried to control this force of nature, which being sugar, I can't protect people from this person. And if I get in the way, I'm going to die too. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's where he differs and that's why he ends up surviving the novel and the movie. Right. He's one of the only characters that survives. Right, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is top build in this movie. He was actually the biggest star of this movie when it came out, which is pretty crazy, d- d- despite him having the least amount of lines out of, out of both Moss and Sugar. I was really surprised, but on the other I guess not surprised, that he's from the same area of Texas area, that yeah. this takes place in. Marfa, Marfa, really, Texas. That is really interesting because he's so good. He, yeah, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones, and we watched some behind the scenes and literally Tommy Lee Jones behind the scenes was Ed Tom Bell. Exactly. Like they're the same person. Yeah, just grizzled and he has that accent and he's just mired in that Setting. Yeah, when the secretary was just like, yeah, the, the men from the CIA, they're waiting up for you. And he's like, well, that was cordial of them. It yeah. just like goes like, he's just so funny. And going back to what you're talking about, fate, I just wanted to, you know, rope in choices into it. So Moss's fate was him coming across the drug deal gone wrong, right? He came across the cars, but it was his choice to pursue the money and that choice says everything about his 
character. Like he, you gotta know with something like this that has led to this much violence that pursuing the money and taking it is gonna lead to some some harsh times, right? Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows that he loves his wife, but not enough to avoid putting her in danger like yeah. he does. Yeah. And you know, in Anton Chigurh's mind, it's like, okay, once he made the choice to grab the money, once Moss started going down that road, he was going down the road to his death, right? It's not a matter of like, when is this chase gonna stop? When in, when is he gonna get away? It's like, no, he, he's gonna die. Whether, <laughs> Trigger is like, whether I'm 80 or, or whether I catch up to him tomorrow, I am going to kill him because this is his fate. Right, which is really good because like we've said before too, the whole setup of the movie, of course you're on Moss's side, you want him to survive. But there's a huge part of you that knows he isn't. But you're like, oh, but it's a movie. Yeah, So of right. course he's going to come out on top. And then a really good example of another sort of subversion of expectations is when Wells is introduced. Mm -hmm. Who's played by Woody Harrelson in the movie, who's also great. Who was who was second billed after Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> so incredible. so you think like, oh, Woody Harrelson's in this movie. He's going to play a major part. Right, even the meta aspect of how they built up your expectations about how that person is going to be a major character, well, no. Right. And that's, again, it just goes back to how well they know. You know, this is something that I really love about good artistic choices and good pieces, is how if you know how a genre works, you know how to make it work for you when you break the rules. Right. And this is such a good example of an author who wrote this as a screenplay first and was mm -hmm. not able to get it picked up until he'd written this book and mm -hmm. then the Coen brothers picked it up. So this is such, just such a great example of someone who understood the facets of, like you were talking about, a successful Western, which mm -hmm. is fun. We talk about it in True Grit. It's a very straightforward story. You don't have to do a lot of mental participation. You don't have to have a lot of mental participation to understand where this these things are going. Mm -hmm. Now, Cormac McCarthy said, "I know how to do that. It's been done. How can I get my point across by breaking all those rules?" Yeah, and he does it so well. It's incredible. It truly is incredible because these are dark themes: the nature of evil and the role of fate in life or death. Those are major themes. Those are big things. And those are things that maybe normal people think about in passing, but it's not something you want to dwell on mm -hmm. because we all know we're going to die, but we right. don't want to think about it. And we certainly don't want to think about being murdered by a psychopath as attractive as Javier Bortem. Not with that haircut. <laughs> not with that haircut. Not with that smile. Oh my God, that smile he has when he murders that guy on the side of the road. Haunting. Yeah. Haunting. Yeah. That will haunt my dreams. But what I'm saying is that those things can be brought to the surface when a skilled author like this and when skilled directors and skilled actors are able to bring that into your face and say, you have to deal with it because this is your fate. Whew. What a scary Boy. thing to ponder. Hey, Scotty, we're... Um... We're dogs. Dog sitting. Laura's parents. Dogs, and he's snoring. You're probably <laughs> catching all the snores. This, this nice microphone we got like here. Fifteen years old. He's a really bad dog. I. We love him. He's a piece of shit, but we love him. <laughs> Scotty, we're recording a podcast. Oh, good boy. Good boy. You have anything to say about the movie, Scotty? That was good. No. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that. I just can't get over how quickly wells is killed he's yeah. he's also 
I feel like he's killed faster in the book, actually. I, because was, gonna, I was literally going to say that. It's literally pages. Mm-hmm. He is he is in and out. And when I was reading, I was reading in bed, and I think you probably remember this moment, but I sort of, there had been already a couple other murders that had just happened. And then Wells walks in, he enters, and I think, okay, now there are multiple people in the case. Maybe Moss will leave and accept some help. A couple pages later, I almost threw the book down, and I was like, what... I was like, did that even happen? It's one of those moments where you're reading a book and you have to reread what you just read because you're just like, wait, like that person is now dead? It was so jarring to seventh grade Danny to watch that that I'm sure. I didn't even comprehend that Woody Harrelson had died because that was just so not what I was mm-hmm. expecting. Like he is literally introduced and the writing around his character is so good because you feel confident in him. Yes. You know that he's experienced and you know it's revealed later that he's a you know a retired colonel. Well you you kind of start again, this goes to how this how well this piece plays into your expectations, but you think that he might be Sugar's foil mm-hmm. immediately because they do introduce him as a confident headhunter, bounty hunter. Mm-hmm. Right. And it looks like he has a lot of skills and he presents himself in that way, but he's but, not at all. But and he and even Wells himself is so caught off guard yeah. by being thwarted that he can't accept his fate, exactly. right? So so we the scene before that in both the book and the movie, Wells confronts Moss in the hospital in Mexico, saying, like, look, you're not listening. You you can't bargain with Shigur. It's either I kill him for you or you will be killed. You can't make deals. Again, and that goes back to his feeling of control. Right. So that scene happens. And then the very next scene, Shigur is able to ambush Wells because no one thought that Shigur would return to the scene of the crime for a third time. Because yep. that's such smart writing, right? Because, you, know, yeah. you know, sometimes you return to the scene of the crime, but to do it three times... Like, that's unheard of, right? Yeah. And that's what leads to Wells being caught. And then Wells is so surprised. Well, he, he just walks around the corner of the staircase. Right. He doesn't even wait to ambush him in the room. He just walks behind. And you know, as soon as you see him, Wells, well, you hope he won't die, but you know. Right. It's like, and even Wells doesn't accept it. Right. He just, and he just kind of saunters to the room and sits down and it's he's not he's almost not bothered and it's funny because wells had just come from a conversation with moss saying like moss accept your fate but the irony is that wells couldn't accept his own fate and and right and he and he tries to bargain with sugar which again wells had just said you can't bargain with sugar and yet the very next scene he's doing that and sugar straight up says you should admit your situation. There'd be there'd be more dignity in that. And it's like, yeah, like well, even though Wells is a bounty hunter and like what he's doing is the the morality is in a, in a gray zone, right? Y- y- you don't know whether he's like truly a good guy or just in it for the money. So in a sense, Sugar is right. Wells rambling on and trying to bargain. It's like th- there really is no dignity in that. You know, face your fate, dude. Yeah. Just like it, you're you're done. And, and, I mean, that's probably the biggest twist. I mean, even though that you don't see Moss being killed, I think Woody Harrelson, who one of the most underrated actors uh, when this was released, and then, like, now Woody Harrelson is kind of going through a resurgence now with, like, True Detective and 
him being on SNL a lot. I don't think he was appreciated back in the day is what I'm trying to say. So that was even, you know, just so, so crazy to see that. Well, yeah. And then, so let's bring that around to, I guess I have a couple, just two more things that I want to talk about. The first one being the difference in Carla Jean's fate Mm -hmm. between the book and the movie. Because that's really the only time where this movie diverges from the book. Other than the fact that, actually I'll just sort of tack this on. I'll be honest, the book ended like a wet fart for me a little bit. Oh, me, yeah, I agree. like I said, I was... I could not put this book down. I mm. probably read it in two nights and I was done with it. It was incredible. But I really, really waned by the time Sugar's car accident happens. Mm-hmm. After that, which is exactly where the movie ends. Ends, which rightfully. Is yeah. perfect. Or, well, you have one more scene after that. And right. Yeah, okay. So let me just say that the end of the book was rightfully cut off by the movie. Yeah. Because it, it does kind of wane, and it, it ends with just Tom Bell talking to Ellis. But for who, like an hour. But for like an hour. And he Ellis sort of ferries in Tom's understanding that he needs to get out of the game. He kind of mm-hmm. comes to terms with the fact, again, that he just needs to get out of the game for himself to survive, and then he can sort of spend time in retirement with his yeah. wife. Like, yeah, with that great... It, it takes like three chapters. Right, yeah, and the, it, it's nuts how long it is in the yeah. book. And so, but in the movie, they rightfully cut it off with Ellis saying, "Like the country's hard on people, you can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity." And then I'm like, "Wow, what a line to like punctuate yes. a scene." Yes. Yeah. So rightfully cut that off. Well done, Coen Brothers. Yeah. So anyway, going back to the major difference, really the only major difference between the book and the movie is Carla Jean's fate. And it may not be, it's up for debate whether it's different or not, but in the book, the line where she dies, it's so grisly. All it says is sugar shot her in the face. Yeah, just like bluntly, just right in the face. End of the chapter, end of the paragraph, end of this, like, end of her life. She's done. She's done. And that's really jarring and it's sad, but it goes along with sugar's philosophy of you made all these decisions and your husband decided your fate. Yeah. <laughs> Which really shows the flaw, too, in Sugar's philosophy. Because obviously it's it's flawed. I mean, of course, you can believe that death is your fate and that's what everybody that's what's coming down the line for everybody. But Sugar is also making choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's so that's sort of the crack in his philosophy. He is deciding to be and act as fate, but he doesn't have to. And in both the book and the movie, Carla Jean fights back by saying, like, no, the coin doesn't have any say. It's it's just you. Right. And but I would really appreciate about the movie is that Carla Jean stands strong and doesn't call heads or tails right Right. like she said and in the book she eventually caves in and i think carla jean who fun fact is the only character in the movie who speaks to all the three men main characters she's the only three who has scenes with yeah tom bell moss and chigurh and uh, another fun fact tom bell 
Anton Sugar and Moss never have they don't have any scenes together. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. which is That's pretty. Very fun. The also the actress who plays Carla Jean is Scottish. Yeah, Scottish. And she's incredible. Her accent is amazing. Even Tommy Lee Jones commends her accent. Right. Being from that region of Texas, he says she has it down incredibly. So that what a great compliment. Yeah, the actress is Kelly McDonald. Who she was in Train Spotting, and she also played uh, Merida, right? Yeah, in, in Brave, in Brave right. the the main yeah yeah main Brave girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So anyway, we got derailed. But going back to the scene, uh-huh. you're right. In the book, she calls it, but Sugar has made up his mind. This is her fate. He shoots her in the face. In the movie, you don't see him shoot her, and you don't hear a gunshot. Mm-hmm. And she says it's not about the coin toss; it's about your decision. And again, that shows that crack in his philosophy. So that's a really interesting change, and I like it. Right, and it's a change that, what I was saying earlier, how the Coen brothers kind of respect the audience, because there are some clues at the end of that scene to Carla Jean's fate that if you're paying attention, you know, informs what actually happened but at the at the same time it's still up for interpretation and it's not the definitive answer so the clue i'm talking about is you know midway through the film when shigur shoots wells the pool of blood starts to um flow towards sugar's shoes and right before it hits the shoes sugar puts his feet up so Mm -hmm. the blood won't get on his boots and then with carla jean when sugar walks out of the house he looks at his shoes to see you know ostensibly right. if there's any blood on them yeah. and that's the kind of it's a very quick you know the it's a very it's a wide angled frame so you know it's very quick so if you miss that you know you might not know what happened mm-hmm. and seventh grade danny sure didn't know i was just like wait they're not gonna show like did she survive what like what does that mean mm-hmm. but i think the cohen's they respect the audience enough to pick up on Sugar's earlier actions and then yeah. to see that later being like, okay, so this means that. Well, and that goes back to how rewatchable it is. Right. But anyway, so my second thing that I wanted to use to wrap up my analysis is going back to the flaw in Sugar's philosophy of I am fate and I deliver death. So the thing that's interesting about that is that he is also human and he is open to chance. And that chance happens in the very end when he's T-boned by the car going through the stop sign as he's driving away from Carla Jean's house or her mom's house. Right, yeah. So, and that that is also like very violent and disgusting. I have to say, I closed my eyes when I figured out that they were going to show the bone coming out of it. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I just that's gross. I cannot. I can't. That's going to make me throw up. So... That's disgusting. But yeah, it's it's just the whole thing about how fate is coming down the line, but there are always chances. And that it kind of speaks to the the, the scene as well with the shopkeeper. Mm-hmm. He Sugar decided to introduce a little bit of chance in that situation. And because he's human, he's also open to that, and so he got injured in this accident. Probably we we know probably not bad enough to kill him, and he's right. probably still out there. Oh yeah, that's heavily implied, obviously. But yeah, it's it's a really flawed philosophy, and it's but it's really scary, you know. And again, just to like wrap this up, it's it's just sad the 
larger political statement that McCarthy is using this book to get across is what he introduces in the beginning of the book. He ruminates on believing in Satan because a friend had asked him if he believed in Satan. He says, I think if you were Satan and you were sitting around trying to think up something that would just bring the human race to its knees, what you probably would come up with is narcotics. Yep. And that's really sad, but that's his statement is that this new brand of evil that Tom Bell has to eventually walk away from because he can't protect the common citizen is caused by narcotics. Right. And it's interesting. And it, you know, yields this unstoppable evil, which I think Sicario is one of another one of my favorites. But I think it owes a lot to Cormac McCarthy's at least the book in that this message of how narcotics is this unstoppable force, you know, especially in Texas, the Texas, the Texas, Mexico border region where Sicario takes place. You know, the whole message of Sicario is that look at this war that's happening with all these deaths. And at the very end, nothing has changed. Like it's still going on. It's exactly the same idea. So yeah. That nothing is going to change because sugar is still out there. Right. And the money is still out there. And we don't even know where the drugs got. Mm -hmm. Right. The drugs disappear at some point. Right. And it's up for interpretation at the end in the movie, whether or not sugar took the money from the hotel room that uh, Moss was shot at. I mean, it's implied Mm -hmm. that he was. In the book, they outright uh, say that uh, Sugar took the money from the room, and then there's actually an additional scene with Sugar delivering the money to some random, you know, white guy who, who, you know, hired him, or unknowingly, like, kind of hired him. But, yeah, the movie just leaves that out. Like, it's just saying, like, in, in a sense, that's even more scary to be less like, is Sugar still looking for the money? Does he have it? And is he is he on to the next job? Like, what's going... The point is, is that there will always be a Sugar, multiple Sugars, in this line of business, in this, you know, war, this drug war bet- right. that's going on between, you know, between gangs in Mexico, but also in Texas and between borders. It's like this perpetual thing where everyone's fighting someone, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but wow, what what a film. I mean, we've certainly, this has certainly been a fruitful discussion, but I'd like to go on to some fun facts. Okay, if, I just have one fun fact, oh, so don't hell yeah, me. go ahead. Can I go first? Yeah. Oops. Okay, the only fun fact that I have about this, other than the few I guess I've shared here and there during the relevant conversation, but the coin that Shiger flips in the book and the movie, Ooh. he asks what year is on the coin mm-hmm. to the shopkeeper. And it happens to be 1958, which is the year that Jake Epping goes back in time to, if you've read 11-22-63. Not the show, not the TV show. He goes back to a different year in the TV show. But in the book, he goes back to 1958. So I thought that was kind of a fun crossover, and it's a little bit of a sneak peek because we will be covering that on the podcast. Ooh, so that's a fun fact sneak that I peek. You heard yeah. it here. First, folks, and if you want to get ready for the episode, that book is a thousand pages. A so, thousand and eighty. Yeah, so start reading now, so you'll re- so you're ready for that episode. But disclaimer: I also read that in a week. It's incredible. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Definitely worth the investment of time. Right. Yes. And that's all I'll say. I am done sharing fun facts. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to focus on Javier 
Bardem. He had done a lot of movies in Spain, uh, where he's from, and then also Mexico as well. But he wasn't really known in America that well when this came out. And when the Coen brothers approached Javier Bardem to play Sugar, Bardem said, and I quote, like, I don't drive, I speak bad English, and I hate violence. And the, the Coen brothers responded by saying, well, maybe that's why we called you. So it's kind of, you know, they're creating this character that seems just like inhuman, right? This person who is alien, right? Like Bardem was playing this person who he has no connection to. But that's kind of, that kind of disconnect created a great character. And, and Javier Bardem would go on to win Best Supporting Actor at the 80th Academy Awards, making him the first Spanish actor to win a supporting award. Well deserved. Yeah. I mean... Again, his smile after he murders the guy on the side of the road. Yes. Haunting. Yes. I can't draw that out enough because it's literally the worst. Right. It's so terrifying. And um, the Coen brothers, they used a photo of a brothel patron taken in 1979 as a model for Sugar's hairstyle. And yeah, and when the Bardem (laughs) saw uh, the new haircut that they made for him, he's quoted as saying, oh no, now I won't get laid for the next two months. (laughs) Well, honestly, that's true. He looks so different. Oh yeah, and just, I mean, immediately (laughs) identifiable. Yeah. (laughs) No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And some more fun facts. Uh, Josh Brolin, he was working on Grindhouse in 2007 when he saw the that there's there's this role of Moss up, and he, with dir- director Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, you know who made Grindhouse, they they're the directors who filmed his audition tape. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a fun. Fact. That is really cool. cool. Now going back to There Will Be Blood. Okay, <laughs> not only <laughs> will these movies be eternally linked but the funny thing is that they filmed in the same city of marfa texas and at the same time at the same time right right. wow and it was shooting nearby and then one day while filming a wide shot of the landscapes for no country directors uh you know ethan and joel cohen they had to halt shooting for a day when a gigantic cloud of dark smoke floated you know into view (laughs) And what, what Paul Thomas Anderson was doing that day for There Would Be Blood was testing the pyrotechnics for the oil derrick, which, you know, spoiler alert in There Will Be Blood, that oil derrick catches on fire. Right. So he was testing that scene, and the smoke from that scene was interrupting the filming of No Country for Old Men. Yeah. And those films would later go on to duke it out for every single award at the 80th Academy Awards. And... So No Country was up for eight Academy Awards, and it won four. It won Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Achievement in Directing for the Coen Brothers, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, Javier Bardem, and then Best Picture. And, of course, it lost Best Cinematography, my boy Roger Deakins. So when he was nominated for this, it was his 11th nomination. He would go on. He would be nominated two more times before he would eventually win for his fourteenth nomination in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. So he was nominated. Hey guys, this is Danny. I'm just interjecting real quick because I made a big error with my Roger Deakins facts. 
I know, how could this have happened? This is really embarrassing. I claim to be one of his biggest fans. Well, I'm human. Sometimes humans mix up facts. They get lost in the moment, but I'm here to correct my mistake. So, his work on No Country for Old Men, it was not his 11th nomination. It actually was his sixth. He was nominated that very same year, that's right, two nominations one year. He was also nominated in 2007 for his work on The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. That's also a masterful film, a true piece of art. I definitely recommend you seeing that. He could have won for that as well. Then. He was nominated in 2009 for his work on The Reader. He would lose to Slumdog Millionaire. Then in 2011, he was nominated for True Grit. He would lose to Wally Fisser from Inception, his work in Inception. And I can also kind of understand that loss. Inception is a true masterpiece. Um, and then in 2013, he would lose to Life of Pi. That year he was nominated for Skyfall. Um, insane loss, he should, have, he should have won for sure for Skyfall. One of the most beautiful, the most visually stunning Bond film and just a true piece of art as well. I can't believe he lost. What's even more absurd, the next year, the very next year he would lose, for his work on Prisoners, he would lose to Gravity. He lost to Emmanuel Lubezki, which remember that name because the very next year, that's right, three years in a row, he's been nominated. Roger Deakins was nominated for Unbroken. He would lose to Lubezki for his work on Birdman. Okay, it's one take. We'll give it to you, Lubezki. But then the very next year, so Roger Deakins, four nominations in a row. He would lose to Lubezki again. Lubezki was nominated for The Revenant. Deakins was nominated for Sicario. He should have won for Sicario. That was absolute BS. But then finally, on his 14th nomination, Deakins would take home the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049. He was nominated in 2018. He'd win his first win. That's absurd. But then his 15th nomination, he won for 1917. Um, so he has, he has two Oscars to his name, 15 nominations total. My goodness, <laughs> Jesus. Christ Almighty, I'm sorry to use the Lord's name in vain, but I mean this, I feel like I'm justified in this instance. Okay, sorry again for the misinformation. Hopefully it's all clear now. Back to the episode. Here's the thing. This is one of the few times where I agree with Roger Deakins losing. I mean, it, it is such a tough choice picking between Roger Deakins for No Country or um, Robert Ellswit for I think that's his name for There Will Be Blood. Like, gun to my head, I don't know which one I would pick. But I would probably go, it, it's, it's a miserable decision, but I would probably go with There Will Be Blood just for, you know, probably that oil derrick sequence. But, yeah, one of the few times where I agree with Roger Deacon's losing. But the shots are incredible. But like, it, like, incre like, incredible. Oh my gosh. So, something that Danny has taught me just after watching movie after movie with him, most of which were shot by Roger Deakins. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning to notice how difficult contrast shots are, mm. and especially at night. And it's funny because I don't know if I would call myself a cinephile, but I like a lot of really old movies. I, I guess this doesn't really make me stand out too much, but Rear Window is one yeah. of my favorite movies. And a lot of the old Hitchcock movies, just a lot of old movies in general, when they first started coming out on film, it's so easy to tell when there's a night shot or there's a night scene and there's just a filter 
Yeah, it was filmed over, during day right. to look like night. Yeah. yeah, and it's just so obvious, and it kind of takes you out. The lighting is purple. It's it's just so easy to see that those things were shot during the daytime, and there's just a filter to make it look like night. And to see the progression of filmmaking from something like Rear Window or... North by Northwest? To Catch a Thief. Ooh. Or North by Northwest. Take your pick of those movies because we've what, recently we've all, watched all them. three of those are great by <laughs> yeah, the way great but yeah as i was saying just to watch the incredible technological transition yeah from that with those which are incredible movies because the directing to a cinematographer like roger deakins who can shoot the scene when in the very early dawn when moss is running away from the cartel who's trying to catch up with him and he dives into like right before he dives into the river the contrast of the dawn early morning light sky mm-hmm. versus the black of the desert it's just incredible. it's beautiful like every frame truly it's, is a painting it, yeah and it but it's so natural and You're that's right. what's so mind-blowing because you know i've I w- i've been lucky enough to live in places like nevada and arizona where the lighting during the dawn and during sort of the evening time is so striking, especially if there's a storm, like a summer monsoon, the lighting is just incredible. And if you're caught between the sunset colors in the desert and a storm head over, you know, in the west or something, Mm -hmm. and then the darkness of the land... he just he brings those colors out and it's just incredible and especially the scene when sorry there's a plane overhead when at the hotel when sugar is chasing moss like shooting at him you see like the bright lights the street lights but then everything around the lights are dark so it's like resembles like a real night where you can only see like what's directly under you and everything else is obscured by darkness and it's so crazy how something so realistic and and intense can be so beautiful at the same time think about just like whipping your iphone out and taking a picture with the flash right you don't get that nuance as if you know it's just like oh if you take a picture of a sunset it's never going to look the same as on your phone you might as Mm -hmm. well not take the picture because it's never going to be that brilliant roger deakins honestly could probably take a picture with a with an iphone and make it look like you're standing on the edge of the grand canyon yes oh (laughs) completely agreed it's so cliche to talk about how great Roger Deakins is, but honestly, his reputation is 100% earned. Absolutely. You well, can go... I'm not a cinephi- I don't know anything about movies. Oh, I stop didn't... it. You know no, plenty. No, but I'm saying, like, I can recognize that. Huh? Even I can recognize that. And I recognize how special and knowledgeable you are. Well, you're the one who took the scales from my eyes. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well I honestly, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but we, we've been saying we've been going on too long, so we're going to cut it short. If you want to talk more about this movie, DM us. I mean, honestly, we can, again, like we're saying, even though this movie is really challenging and, you know, intentionally anticlimactic, it leads to these great conversations about how our story is supposed to be told. Like, what is... Cormac McCarthy saying about fate and like and how what what roads have we unknowingly gone down via our 
our choices. Like, are we truly good or is evil pursuing us? All these, like, really stuff that'll keep you up at night, yeah, honestly. I know. It'll probably keep me up tonight. <laughs> Do you, oh, no. You're going to have to deal with me up all night again. You know it would be crazy? I think your hair is... You have enough hair where you can get the sugar cut. I, you know, cost cutters is open. <laughs> Great Clips is open, dude. I just walk in with a picture of sugar. Can you Do just this. Do that. What does that mean? Do this, and then the hair, the barber is like, "Got you, fam." <laughs> and then you just come out, and you have an air tank, <laughs> and a, a cattle gun. Anyways, that'd be hot. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been great, but. Yeah, if you want a further discussion, DM us. Yeah. Well. Oh. Well, rating. So movie. It's almost perfect for me. Uh, three and a half out of four and then the book the book is also great but i completely agree with you there's about an hour of it of just tom bell just going on and on easily could have been cut like uh, so it kind of spoils it spoiled it for me so i say three out of four stars for the book for me have what what's your opinion i i am on the same page three out of four stars because i barely remembered anything i actually had to look at a summary again today to make sure that I remembered what went on in the last three chapters because I honestly was like sleepwalking through, yeah. that, through that book. Same. <laughs> so, so definitely three out of four stars for me for the book and for the movie, I would say three and a half stars. It's, yeah. it's almost perfect. There are just a couple like scenes that maybe dragged a little bit, but yeah. the dialogue is spot on. They cut the book right where it should have been cut for the movie. The lighting is incredible. Yeah. Acting incredible. Yeah. High rating. Amen. All right. Scotty, any final thoughts? Man, it was okay. No, he's out like a light. (laughs) Fed him too many treats. Oh, oh, oops. I said the word. Now he's alerted. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.